Be good. Hello, friends and strangers. Welcome to the Monkey Tooth Podcast. This is Andrew. My wife Tiffany and our dog Pele are inside an actual house at the moment. We're in Denver, Colorado, visiting our good buddy who's looking after us, and uh, we're having a good time. I'm actually still in the van because this is the quietest place I can think of to record, and I just kind of like it in here. I just want to skip through any ancillary BS and get straight to our guest today. His name is Skip Anderson, and we met Skip through another mutual friend in Bozeman, Montana. Skip, I'm just going to pull out a piece of paper here and read it, because he's a busy guy. Uh, he is a freelance writer for a variety of magazines, uh, not the least of which would be the Nashville scene, which is a pretty hip uh, music scene in itself. A uh, magazine called No Depression. Um, he works for Texas Music Magazine. Uh, he's a communication specialist for the Center for Biofilm Engineering. He's going to tell you what that is. And he's a dad to a, a little girl, beautiful little girl named Barrett, who you will hear on this episode. Tiffany uh, got to get her kid fixed and hang out with this little girl while Skip and I sat down and talked about all kinds of stuff. And at the end of it, he fed me some chili. And uh, I mean, I'm glad for all of it. It was amazing to meet Skip, but everything's worth it if there's like a big bowl of beautiful chili at the end. And that's certainly what we had. Okay, so yeah, that's coming up in just a minute. I want to thank all our Patreon supporters. I want to thank all you people who've left us reviews on iTunes or Stitchers. Stitcher, not Stitchers. Sorry, turned it into an old man. And I want to say thank you, a huge thank you to everyone who's reached out to us, has sent us recommendations, has introduced us to friends. Uh, we have met some amazing people on this journey, and it just wouldn't be the same without you guys out there. So, so thanks. If you've got anything you want to tell us, you can do so at mtp.dog forward slash contact to send me a note. There's all kinds of stuff going on there on the website. I do a journal there. Um, we've got a bunch of different things going on. So check it out. Tell us what you think. Send me a note and keep being fantastic. We love you. And that's it. Here comes the episode right now. What's your daughter's name? This is Barrett. B-E-R-I-T. B-E-R-I-T. She's eight months old tomorrow. Yeah. This is the youngest guest we'll have had on the podcast so far. She will make spontaneous appearances, yeah, I'm sure. I'm for it. I'm for it. <laughs> uh, where Where are you from originally? I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, underneath the, a state flag that had the Confederate battle flag on it. Yeah. And even as a kid, it was offensive. Yeah. I knew. I knew better, and even in the early 70s. Yeah. I can uh, I can relate to that. I was born in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, and my dad and my brother uh, both ended up going to Ole Miss. Oh, uh, which does it still have the Confederate flag? No, has it? No, they got rid of it. They got rid of the, the Confederate flag. They don't play Dixie at halftime anymore. Okay, at the football games, and they got rid of Mister Reb. That was what really hurt them the most. I think their fan base, their football fan base, was the Reb, the like the Rebel. Are they still the Rebels? Is that still the I name think of the team? I, I think they are. 
I think there are I mean, baby steps. There's just so many. How many layers can you peel back? You know, yeah, it's it's a. I think Mississippi's like the only state that has not officially abolished slavery. Or oh, really? You have to Google that. I'm not yeah, sure that's right. <laughs> it feels right. Yeah, if you're at home, even though that may be morally true in your brain, <laughs> Google that. And double check us. So, so uh, you went from Atlanta, you've moved around the southeast a lot? A little or? bit, not a lot. Um, yeah. We lived in a tiny town just east of Memphis called Milan, Tennessee. Oh, I know about Milan. Yeah, yeah. Well, my grandfather, you're, I'm pretty much a Kennedy in Milan, Tennessee. Oh. My grandfather was a three-term mayor All right of on. Milan, Tennessee. He got the National Guard Armory to go there. That was his wow. big claim to fame. Brought in the, the big bucks. Yeah, he did. That's still the major employer there. Yeah. Uh, so we lived there for a few years, but before elementary school started, we went back to Atlanta for a little while and then moved to Nashville by the time uh, junior high school rolled around. And that's very much been my home, aside from a couple of weird pockets of time. I've been back for my mother's funeral, and I've been back a time or two. They wrote a newspaper article on, newspaper article on me. Uh, I went back 10 years ago as part of a, a delegation from Vanderbilt University where I worked. Um, and I mentioned to someone in the delegation, my grandfather was a mayor here. And the next thing I know, the reporter did this big, and I'm glad my grandparents got to see that before oh, they passed. Cool. Yeah, that's I think cool. it made them feel good. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. Did you go to school in Vanderbilt? Or no? no, I went across uh, across the way at Belmont University, okay. yeah. which they were the rebels um, my freshman year, and then converted to the Bruins. It's a good move. The Bruins. Yeah, good move. Yeah. Yeah. And And they... Uh, but they were still resisting giving license status to uh, LGBT student organization when I was there. They got it through, but mm. there was some resistance. What year was that? Well, let's see. I graduated in '94. This was '91, uh, I think, mm. when they when that. I mean, even it's crazy to think about for then, like in the South in the '90s, talking about being gay was a big deal. It Even was. just bringing it up, you know, like having that as a discussion that was maybe 20 years behind everywhere else in the country, but it was progressive for the South. It was. And I, I worked at Vanderbilt in the late 90s through 2007 and 2008. And uh, that was a hyper conservative, very white, very rich student body. Mm. And if you saw a minority, odds were they were an athlete. Um, there were racial overtones to a lot of the socialization there. Mm -hmm. You know, there were parties where people would appear in blackface and it wow. wasn't a big deal. And then there was a change at the chancellor level. And I saw what happens when change happens. I saw an effective way that change can happen quickly. Uh, Gordon Gee came in and he brought with him a liberal ethos. He had been president of Brown university uh, yeah. before and Ohio state and Colorado. So, he he wasn't having that. Yeah. And he very quickly um, beefed up the recruitment of minority students. He established a Jewish student center, the Hillel Center on campus, and broke down some long-standing, very entrenched social structure yeah. uh, that the campus is much better off. Yeah. Those, those, that might be his most uh, lasting impact on that university, and he did have quite a bit of impact. Yeah. That's Beyond strong. Energy. I mean, that that's the sort of thing that, um, you know, people ask where I'm from occasionally and you tell them you're from the South. 
and people associate the South with racism and with, with problems with you know, diversity and tolerance and all these sorts of things. So when you can pick up on a story like that where there are co- you know, like concrete changes in the culture, I'm glad to hear them. You know, I'm glad to share them with people. You know, you read Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie, and it's this joyous celebration of the diversity in culture and demographics as he travels from east to west across the northern half of the country, um, where he says Montana is his favorite place. He's in love with Montana. Um, But then when he heads south, heads back to the east through the south, it just becomes this nightmarish uh, story to hear. And it's still painful to read, you know, 60 years later. Yeah. I mean, that, that was a rough time to be in the south, particularly if you were not just a white person. You know, my... My parents moved to, um, my parents are carpetbaggers. They're from uh, the Midwest. They moved from Michigan and Illinois down to Mississippi. And uh, you know, they experienced some eye-opening shit when they got there. Uh, I mean, just horrible racism. My mom was, uh, she's a nurse and just had a very high standard of care. The hospital she was working with had some weird ties to some pretty awful racist past and they kind of got run out of town they had to move north to memphis to find (laughs) find more liberal types to (laughs) sort of make it safe for them to be around it's kind of weird to to think about that now but yeah anyway sorry to get immediately entrenched in like the the barbed wire net of well it's it's complicated and it's refreshing to be out of moving to montana yeah um i'm i'm far removed from that stereotype. Now right. there's still racism here sure. and I, you don't have to look hard to find it, right. but I don't feel like it's part of the identity. Yeah. And when I moved here, people would say, Oh, where are you from in the South? And I didn't realize I had any kind of accent whatsoever. Oh yeah. And I, I got home that night and I said to Andrea, do you think I have an accent? Do you hear an accent? She goes, Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I heard it. Uh, that would, so when we, um, first of all, we are in Montana at the moment, sitting in your house in Bozeman and, uh, our mutual friend called you on the phone to sort of, uh, negotiate where we were going to meet at oddly enough, a barbecue festival, uh, <laughs> of course. And when I heard your voice over the phone, I knew one, this guy's from the South yeah. and two, uh, we had no context of it. He was just like, I'm going to call my buddy. <laughs> and then I knew you were an interesting guy just in the way you answered the phone. Because, I mean, everybody's got a caller ID on their phone. So I'm assuming you knew that it was Nathan calling you. And you were like, this is Skip. Like this very <laughs> kind of, I was like, okay, this guy's got something going on here. I knew I wanted to talk to you. So I knew you were from the right side of the Mason Dixon. Yeah. And and now here we are in your home and there's chili on the pot on a on a rainy day, which I think is probably a Southern impulse, maybe. Could be. Maybe I just associate that with the South. But I, anyhow, I want to know, what got you here to to Bozeman? Right. Well, my career is pretty portable as a freelance journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, I, w- I met my wife in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, four years ago. And after a couple of years of dating, once we realized we were getting uh, exclusive with one another and investing more than just boyfriend and girlfriend, we came out here to visit uh, with half of a mind to audition the town. And uh, it's so charming here. It's just beautiful. And the people are nice. And uh, we thought, well, let, let's come back in the winter. See if we like it when there's, you know, when it's minus 20 degrees with a 40 degree, 40 mile an hour wind. And 
snow everywhere. So we did, and we were still in love with the city. Wow. So uh, when we moved here, there were 47,000 people living in Bozeman, and now there's 47,002 plus Barrett. For, she's our anchor baby. Anchor baby. <laughs> <laughs> We got squatters rights now. Nice. So I still do a lot of writing for music. Most of the journalism I did in Nashville was in the music area. Mm-hmm. Um, features, stories on musicians, a lot right. of that kind of thing. Um, and I do a lot of that today uh, Today from Bozeman. Yeah. For publications around the country. You know, just work from home. I come from just the other side the nowhere to this big time lonesome town they got a lot of eyes the snow hair half as cold as all the people i found every way i try to go here seems to bring me down I've seen about enough to know where i belong I've got a mind to see the headlights shining on that old white line between my heart and home. Sick of spending Sundays, wishing they was Mondays, sitting in a park alone. So give my best to anyone who's left, whoever's done me any loving way but wrong. Tell them that the pride of just the other side of nowhere's going home. Taking nothing back to show there. I'm, I'm interested to know what you call this area. So we come from the South. It's pretty mm-hmm. easy to identify the South. My wife and I have been living in California. You just call that the West Coast or the Northwest. What do you call Montana? This, this is the American West. Just it's the, the heart West. of the American West. Yeah. Okay. That's a good way to put it. I've not referred to it. I'm just like in the frozen north. <laughs> just up here. No, no. Country. It's so much more than that. Yeah, yeah. It's the uh, American West. I like that. Yeah. So what was it uh, other than just what? what is the charm that for you? Um, I like that there's a university here. Mm-hmm. I like that you can see 80 miles to the hori- mountains on the horizon. I like there are mountains in every direction. And we get these weird shows, these weird musical acts. Big acts will stop off in Bozeman because we're on the stretch of the interstate that connects Seattle to Chicago. Yeah. So sometimes bands will just come through, book a gig here if if only to pay for gas money, you know. Yeah. So, you know, we had we had the Mavericks not too long ago. We had uh um Elton John here two summers ago. Uh, we had a uh, Tim McGraw and Faith Faith hit, uh, play here, and it just the hotels were booked out. I'm sure. And, and all, but Bozeman was sold out completely. And the wow. satellite communities, if you can believe, there are satellite communities, and yeah. there are uh, their their hotels were sold out also. Yeah, I mean the whole population of this state is less than the city of Memphis. Yeah, right? there's we just crossed over one million people. Yeah. We're the fourth largest state in the union behind Arkansas, Arkansas behind Alaska, <laughs> yeah. California, and Texas. Yeah. Uh, and people still think it's too crowded. That's why I say Barrett's our anchor baby because yeah. they yeah. don't like people who New aren't folks. fourth generation, fifth yeah. generation. There is a resistance to that. I get it. I get it. Uh, not not only is Montana barely a million people, 
to get to a city that has a million people, not only yeah. do you have to cross Montana's border in every direction, you have to cross the next border in every direction right? to get yeah. to a sizable population. Yeah. And that's all right by me. I don't, I don't miss cities. Mm -mm. Yeah. I get the charm. Oh, we've been here. We didn't plan on staying as long as we've been here. We, we got here Friday. We're thinking, well, I'm going to stay through maybe Saturday or Sunday. And we'll probably be here till Wednesday. <laughs> it, it has that effect on people. Our, our main street is so charming. Yeah. There are no chain restaurants. Yeah. It's local artists are featured up and down. You know, it's, yeah. It's a local coffee house. I think the mm -hmm. town would revolt. There, there are Starbucks in sure. in Bozeman, but I don't know anyone who goes to them, and they're sure <laughs> as hell aren't on Main Street. Uh, and, and Starbucks is kind of everywhere. It, it's in, it's literally everywhere. It's amazing. We were in Yukon, where there are, <laughs> there's no one there, and there was a Starbucks there. So yeah, they're ubiquitous. They're, yeah, they've they've won. Uh, so you've moved out here to pursue just a good life, your career you've already caught up with. So, so tell me about what you're doing for work. Well, um, work really didn't factor into me moving here, yeah. but we knew we wanted to start a family. I, I don't have much family. Um, I, I wanted to invest in my in-laws. Uh, so I love Andrea's mother very much. I, I love her brother a great deal. They're both helping us raise Barrett, our eight month old daughter a first child for both of us. And uh, so work is almost an afterthought right now. Yeah. Um, you know, I wrote a story on a great Knoxville band called the black lilies this morning. I filed it 20 minutes before you got here. And, uh, now I'm writing about a kid out of Texas, um, named Kirby Brown. And I just, I was listening to his record right before you came in and it is so stinking good. And I'm only yeah. halfway through it. That's great. Yeah, so I enjoy that. So that's your 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 work though is is largely music journalism, right? It or, is um, I, about half of it is the yeah. other half. I work twenty hours a week at the university here at Montana State University as the communications specialist for the Center for Biofilm Engineering. Um, at twenty hours a week, they pay me benefits. Oh, that's fantastic! And, and the, and the salary is good, um, but. I wouldn't want to take a job that wouldn't let me to keep writing about music, even though the pay is not great and it doesn't come with benefits. So what is the center for biofilm mm -hmm. engineering? What's that? Um, it is a research center, the first of its kind when it was founded almost 30 years ago. And it's the oldest uh, research center dedicated to biofilm. Um, if you think about like the plaque on your teeth mm -hmm. is a biofilm okay. um, and it presents itself in a variety of ways in nature. And one of the, leading causes of death from hospital stays goes back to uh, infections yes. and a great number of those infections can be traced to biofilm often on a urinary catheter hmm. you know that stays in place for a few days a little biofilm will start to grow right and that's a very real problem so, so medical devices it's a big issue yeah so like MRSA all these infectious diseases that sort of or, or bacterial organisms that grow in hospital settings, everything from that to like, is, would lichen be considered a biofilm? Like lichen on stones? I'd have to ask yeah. a, a researcher that question. Yeah. Um, I don't know where you split the hair. Yeah. It's, I, I'm sorry to go off on this tangent, but I think of, um, I'll think about the oxygen that I'm breathing and how interconnected and bizarre that, that part of our life that we don't ever actually see is. You know, that there's this, molecule that comes into your body and 
gasifies and reacts with your blood and your brain. Yeah. And you're just constantly in this soup of things you don't see. Yeah. And the idea of a biofilm that's just everywhere from your teeth <laughs> to the things that you're trying to <laughs> heal yourself with. Yeah. So that's a pretty wild thing to have to. So you're the communications director for that organization. I what, am. What's, what's the role there? What do you... Um, what is the role? Mm-hmm. I, I write a lot of copy mm-hmm. that goes on the website. I write summaries for the university's news office to say, hey, here's an over here's a 30,000-foot view of something that's going on over here. Mm-hmm. Maybe it deserves a, a wider audience than our website can reach. Would you guys consider doing a press release on it? Okay. You know, and yeah. So you're so doing do science writing in a way mm-hmm. to communicate a message that often scientists are not the best at communicating. Well, I'm sure they would be better at it than I, but they don't have time. They're looking into microscopes and they're, right, right. you know, analyzing data. Yeah. Do you feel like you take any of the same approach that you take with writing about music? To, no. Uh, Different parts close? of the brain, I think. Really? Yeah. So when you're writing about music, it's a passionate thing that you're really into, whereas when you're writing about this, it's mechanical or? Um, yeah, I, I I pick and choose what I write about with music. And if, if the musician doesn't interest me on some level or their art doesn't interest me on a level, I pass on it. Yeah. I just, I don't write bad reviews. I just don't review it. Oh, that's cool. You know, if, if it happens to be a record review. Yeah. But like I said, I just wrote that profile on the band, the black lilies for mm-hmm. a national uh, music magazine called no depression. And that will go online in at some point like the first week of september uh, 2018 and i'm passionate about i mean i I loved the concert that i saw i had no intention of writing about them yeah until i saw the show and i was like holy cow i'd seen them before and they were good but they have a new lineup now and they have a new energy now and they have a, a more refined sound and they are hitting on all cylinders and i felt like i saw something that i really wanted to share with other people um so I, I pitched it to No Depression, and they're like, you have hit us at a good time. We've, we would like to do something with the Black Lilies. Uh, would you write us something, please? And then there it is. It just, yeah. I, I like that impulse that you're, because most of the time when someone is writing, uh, I mean, just the, the lay person writing a review, uh, in air quotes, of something, it's to bitch about some aspect of whatever's happened. It's rare that people only leave good reviews. And then your your impulse is to, pass on something you're just not interested in or that you would otherwise write a bad review of and only write things write about things that you you got and you enjoyed and would want to share with others it's it's easy to tear things down Mm. and you know the life's complicated enough not not to get all philosophical about it feel free you know if you're going to leave a footprint leave a clean footprint yeah you know i if if I learned something about a band that would embarrass them and it might be titillating, you know, there, there might be someone who would pay me for the story. It is not my inclination to publicize that. It's just not, yeah. you know, um, you're not a gossip columnist and it doesn't sound like you're a rock critic or like a, just a critic. Right. Yeah. That's I, I, cool I, I'm, I'm, I like telling stories. Yeah. And if you're listening to this podcast, you can see I, I, I write and then I rewrite. I got to edit and I can't do that. That's why I, Right, trip over myself a little bit when I'm verbalizing. Fine, yeah, believe me, that could be the other title to this podcast: (laughs) tripping over myself in an effort to verbalize. No, Uh, so when when you got into the the writing 
for music, writing music journalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you have a different sort of journalism background? Like what's your writing? I did. Um, I have a degree in journalism and I never wanted to work for a newspaper or a magazine. That was never my goal. I just felt like I could write pretty well. And if I went to journalism school, I would learn to cultivate that a little bit. And, uh, so I did, I did, I worked for alternative news magazines, uh, in Nashville primarily, and then started freelancing out. And at a different point in my life, um, I felt like I needed to get more serious about my career as I was approaching my late twenties. So I, I signed on with Vanderbilt university and I, I did enjoy the, I enjoyed that work a great deal. I like work being on, on a college campus and, uh, so I did that for nine or 10 years and I guess music came around only because I was writing a feature story about a person who happened to be a musician mm. and I was writing about him because he had also recently been homeless. He spent 5,000 nights homeless. I don't, I don't mean couch surfing homeless. I mean, sleeping under the bridge homeless 5,000 nights. He was a really? songwriter named Vernon Rust. And I'd never really written about a musician before him, but uh, in talking to to him, I learned that he co-wrote Keith Urban's first album um, when he came over from Australia, and it was called the band was called The Ranch, and I think the album is self-titled uh, The Ranch. But Vernon wrote that record, and it's a damn good record. But he did a lot of drugs with Keith Urban, and he sort of led an unspeakable lifestyle for a few years there. Now he, he had a home at that point. Mm. Um, but he got kicked out of the Keith urban camp somewhere along the line. And when he came back to Nashville, he was homeless wow. and Five drugs, everything, the whole shooting match. And yeah. then he caught wind that some of the younger musicians were covering songs off that first record and he's like, I'm going to start getting paychecks again. So maybe I need to clean myself up. So there was a compelling hook to that story. How did you come across him? Um, I was working for a newspaper in Nashville that homeless people sold on the side of the road called The Contributor. Yeah. And there are documentaries out there. I, this is a respected nonprofit organization, yeah, yeah. professional journalist, I, and I was its editor. I bought those. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a great program. Um, they're, on, they're on hard times right now. They're trying to figure out a path forward. Yeah. But that, that organization did a lot of good in the community, and I, I hope they still are. Mm. And uh, Vernon had reached out and said, I want to do a benefit for your organization. And if you guys would just accept the money, that'd be terrific. And I said, well, Vernon, I'd be honored. Uh, How about I come down and uh, watch the show and shake your hand? I'd like to meet you. And I did. And it was a great show. He he knew what the hell he was doing. Really good songs. And he made, uh, he paid us uh, $10, $20 bills, cash. And I walked him to his car, which was a dilapidated Winnebago that, looked like it belonged to someone who didn't really need to be handing out $20 bills to somebody else. Yeah. And I was like, Vernon, you know, I'm honored that you did this, but if you need the gas money, you're welcome. We we can make this up somewhere else. You know, you don't have to sacrifice at this level. He goes, no, I want to, I've had a tough road and I want to give back. And I said, well, tell me about that tough road. And Mm -hmm. then, 
So if you Google Skip Anderson, Vernon Rust, it'll bring up um, an article called The Post-Apocalyptic Rise of Vernon Rust. Wow. And it's it's a his story is an amazing one. And that was the first time I told the story of a musician at that level, at yeah. that depth. And, and that you, led to more work. You spent a lot of time working with homeless and mm-hmm. around the homeless. Do you still have any kind of connection or insight into that? that sort of culture, that world. I do. I roll down my window quite a bit. And if I don't have cash, I say, hi. Yeah. You know, it's, they're invisible. Very much, very much invisible. Uh, the homeless and the elderly often just vanish in, in society. I am climbing high mountain, trying to get home. I am climbing high mountain, trying to get home. I am climbing high mountain, climbing high mountain. Lord, I'm a climbing high mountain, trying to get home. I am bearing the names of many, trying to get home. I am bearing the names of many, trying to get home. I'm bearing the name of many, Lord, I'm bearing the name of many. I am bearing the name of many, trying to get home. I mean, outside of rolling down the window, saying hello and, you know, buying a cup of coffee, is there something that people are missing? Um, Yeah, there's a common belief that people are homeless by choice. Um, I interviewed a guy about how he became homeless. When I was working for that newspaper, I've probably interviewed 200 homeless people uh, in depth, you know, hour long sit downs. And this guy said, well, you know, I had a job just like you do. And I went to work every day, just like you do. And just like my wife did too. And she became ill and we didn't have health insurance and she was going to die. She was terminal. And I, I swung a hammer for a construction company. And without my wife's income, it was going to be hard to keep the house even, you know, before she died. So she and I came up with a plan. I was going to talk to my employer about, um, taking a leave of absence. And if there's any way there could be a minimal amount of income until she passes, you know, and, uh, and he went home and said to his wife, yeah, he went for it. We're, we're, we're going to be just fine. And he was lying. He'd stopped paying his bills. Mm-hmm. Um, his, his wife, you know, his employer said, hey, when you're ready to start work again, come, come back and see us. But we pay people to work. We don't pay people, you know, for, to not work. That's not how this world works. So his wife died thinking everything was going to be fine. And he knew, he knew he was going to be homeless. And he doesn't have friends, you know, th- not that would take him in. Right. You know, he, he doesn't have family just not everyone has the social structure to endure a surprise like that. Yeah. You know, so people, there are a lot of misconceptions. It's easy to see a homeless guy and say, I saw at McDonald's a a help wanted sign. Why don't you get your ass over there and go to work? And you know, it's, if you don't have a car to get to work, if you don't have a toothbrush, if you don't have a shower, um, an address, yeah, it's just, it's very, yeah. life becomes very complicated yeah. um, to participate in society at that level. Yes. And it's it's hard to overcome. And the contributor uh, was very good 
at providing people a means of income that worked with their lifestyle. Um, and I, I want to say the statistic was after 47% of people who stayed in the contributors program for six months had found permanent housing. It was something like that. It was remarkable. It was yeah. staggering. Yeah. Um, and Nashville by and large embraced this, this model. And a lot of people rolled down their windows and a lot of people paid the dollar and then $2. And now they're up to $5 and it's, that seemed to not be working out very well, but I do hope I'm wrong on that. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the notion that people just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps is, I, I get the spirit behind it, but it seems misguided because not everybody's got boots. Yeah. And when you have conversations with people who don't want to think about that context, it's easy for them to fall back on socialism and we don't have the money. And, you know, it, it, I look at our military budget and I look at where we're cutting services, social safety nets and our, our, that's where governments show where their priorities are and you can have a secure nation and not have people be homeless. And some of the freelance work I do right now, um, that's not related to music in, involves a, a tech company out of San Francisco. And they write about, uh, they, they were, they write the computer software that runs autonomous robots. Mm. So I write a lot about autonomous robots. And sometimes we write a little bit about the impact on jobs. Yeah. Some people, there are some legitimate studies that say, it will just shift the jobs. The jobs won't be lost. If, if, if a robot's flipping burgers, well, a job will be created over here in another sector because that robot's there flipping burgers. You just have to retrain the workforce. But it's easy. The other side of that argument, there are there is a, contil- a cotillion of, of scientists who are saying, of economists who are saying, we just need to have a, basic income for Americans because there will be fewer jobs and it's cheaper to give people a baseline to build their lives on. Right. Um, And if some people choose to stay at that baseline and not improve upon it or build on it, so be it. But nobody's going to fall through the cracks in this country anymore. And there's a legitimate um, argument to be made for that. Yeah. The best I've heard it explained, uh, there's a a young guy running for president actually in 2020 or 20 whatever <laughs> the next presidential election. God, is it 2020? It is. It is. Good Lord. Uh, anyhow, Andrew Wang is, um, he's got a really unique insight into UBI universal basic income. That's based on that, that upcoming and incoming, uh, superfluous class that just hasn't got shit to do. Um, which saying that as a guy who's driving around in a van <laughs> interviewing people, <laughs> I know all about being uh, largely superfluous, but, I, it's it's interesting that you um, you're writing about these sorts of things. The three things that you've talked about so far: music, the homeless, and uh, autonomous robots. <laughs> uh, and, well, four and and the biofilm. Yeah. It, it, to me, like if there's room for people to be concerned with biofilm, there's room for people to be greatly concerned with their fellow man. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. there is a connection between you and your fellow man that is. Now, it's not necessarily as close as the biofilm on your teeth, but it's all touching the same thing. We right. are all literally interconnected. Uh, you know, it, it's not just that we need to 
to brush our own teeth and hope for the best. Yes. You know, there is an, uh, I mean, the idea of infection is spread through everyone. Mm-hmm. And if there are people without homes, it, it does affect you. And I don't think everyone quite sees that, that, that having homeless people in your streets does affect you. Yeah. You know, you just, you may or may not notice it because you're fine. You've got plenty of money, but having that homeless person is, you're just right uh, a step away from having a homeless child yeah. or to having someone be injured or killed or, or feeling isolated. I mean, that if you don't feel like that affects you, then you gotta, you gotta check yourself. Loneliness is a very cruel affliction. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I loved about the contributor going to work every day was encountering people who were participating in that community. And we all felt less lonely because of it. Yeah. And that, that was good to be a part of. Yeah. Do you get any of that um, from music? Cause I mean, you're going to live shows, you're meeting musicians and you're seeing people who live a very different life than most people. Yeah. Do you get to address or feel like you're ever um, whittling away at anyone else's loneliness through your work? I don't think so. It's more addressing a, a, an impulse of my own. You know, you, you, you go see a movie or you, you, perhaps you, you drink a great cup of coffee or you go see this great band and you're like, the, per, the person next to you, have you, have you heard this song? Have you had the coffee at this place yet? You know, yeah. there's, there is a desire to connect on that level. And I like having a forum when I hear a band that just is blowing my mind with something that they're yeah. doing. And I, I like being able to write about that. I like being able to convey the enthusiasm that the band excited in me that they had no intention of exciting in me when they wrote the song, when they worked out the arrangement and when they packed up their instruments into a van and drove across the country, I'm just a byproduct. I'm just a guy who bought a ticket, you know, and like, Holy cow, that was great. What they did. I'd like for more people to know about. So I'm not in the business of promoting the van, the band, but that is kind of a byproduct of it. Cause I only write about what I'm enthusiastic about. It's not like, um, the music editor for the New York times. And if the Rolling Stones put out a record, I have to do something with it. I'm a freelance guy. I can pick and choose. And I I like that freedom. Yeah. Are you yourself a musician? Um, I'm a, I'm a strum the guitar when nobody's listening musician. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that you didn't say no right away is, is a yes. (laughs) (laughs) I get it. I get it. What, um, do you feel like, any one of the other informs the other, like your quiet, uh, quiet nights and quiet stars guitar playing is in any way informing your writing about it, your appreciation for it or well, the other way around. Um, it's impressive to watch a pitcher in baseball throw a 98 mile an hour fastball. And it's made all the more impressive knowing you can't do that. That's a physical feat. You cannot pull off. I don't know you that well, but I'd wager you've never thrown a baseball 98 miles an hour. I used to like to go to small ballparks and sit by the bullpen whenever possible and get close to that 98 mile an hour fastball if you're lucky enough. And if it's quiet, you can hear the baseball before it slaps into the mitt. And that amazes me. And I kind of, I get that same charge with musicians 
um, you know, you'll see them, see them milling about at the bar, you know, before they're, before they go on and you wonder, what are they going to do? What would I do? What would I do if they said, Skip, you got to take the lead singer's part? You know, I would, I would stand up there and go, sorry guys, I guess we'll give you your money back. Cause I don't know what, what I'm doing here, right. but no, this guy knows what he's going to do. He's going to yeah. get up there and he's going to, if, if everything goes well, he's going to blow some minds. Yeah. You know, that's what we all get out in the club for. Yeah. One thing that I really like about music and particularly like live touring acts and people who, who really uh, are out there doing it. It's you're, you're helping other musicians with your music. I like, I agree with what you just said. And I like that there in our, in our society that has a lot of winners and losers. There's a lot of dividing lines that segregate out the winners from the losers. And that's just not the case with music. I mean, I guess you could draw a line and say, well, this musician made a million dollars and this musician, you know, made $2 tonight and declare one a victor over the other. But that that's, I like that you can just go and enjoy someone's song that they wrote, that they're performing for you. And there's not a winner or a loser. It's yeah. just, that was, that was a nice experience that we shared. Yeah. I, I was at, but there's a thing called potato festival here in Montana, uh, about 25 miles Northeast of here. It's, it's an annual celebration in, in, um, it's in Manhattan. It's in Manhattan, Montana. Okay. And I went down there with my mother-in-law and one of her friends and I took Barrett and we were all having a great time. And there was a musician about to get on the bandstand. Um, waiting for the previous musician to wrap up her set. And she was terrific. My mother-in-law bought her CD, got to meet her. And, and then off she goes. And I know the musician who's about to play. I didn't know I knew her until she was setting up her gear. I'm like, no, I've met her before. And um, as she was going to play in about 30 minutes and she saw me and she waved and she came down and said, hello. And I introduced her to Barrett. My, my mother-in-law has since gone. And she said, well, you're going to stick around for the show. And I said, well, I really do hope to. When are you going to start? And she said, well, it's going to be about 20 or 30 minutes. And I said, oh, geez, I, I've got to be back in Bozeman soon. But, you know, I'd like to catch you another time. And she said, no, no, let me play you a song right now. Oh, that's great. And she went up to the bandstand and she, and she goes, do you want to hear a cover tune or an original? And I was like, you got to play an original. Yeah. Come on. And she did. And it was lovely. It was, it was a beautiful so cool. song. And it was this moment. She's on the stage and it's just me and Barrett listening. And, you know, it just... It was a great shared experience. Her yeah. husband's her guitar player, you know, yeah. like, that was a great, that was worth getting out of bed for, mm-hmm. you know, that, and music has that power. Yeah, it does. And, and I like that. Yeah. It's, it's rare that music is dividing people and, you know, uh, you taste, you know, the division of taste is a pretty soft division. Yeah. It's not that big a deal. You know? Yeah. So you've met a lot of a variety of musicians. I mean, you do, it seems like you've got kind of a, a bent towards Americana blues and that sort of thing. But what, um, what all have you been able to check out? I mean, a little bit of everything. Have you written about hip hop? Have you like, where, how far does it go? <laughs> I, I have written about hip hop and nobody, nobody wants a 50 year old white guy to be writing about hip hop, but I've done it.
Birmingham and Mobile, not the bad Smoking cigarettes and reefer, drinking coffee blue. See the sun come up and judge. No, I do. I do tend to write about singer songwriters, which tend to fall under the umbrella of Americana, mm-hmm. um, and that's you know that's where your Woody Guthrie's come from. You know that folk mm-hmm. roots music. You know, and Bob Dylan. Um, these these are lions of that art form, yeah. and they're a lions of that art form among us. Yeah. And you know, maybe maybe the woman who played for. For Barrett and I, maybe she's a lion. Yeah. You know, her song was re- very good. Yeah. You know, you never know. What was her name? <laughs> Mercedes uh, Carol. Mercedes Carol. That's a hip name. She's and already... she spells it Mercedes, M A R C E D E S. Mercedes. And she may go by Sadie, the middle part of Mercedes. Right, right. But uh, no, she's a talented woman. Her yeah. husband knows what he's doing on guitar. Yeah. You know, it's hard to break out in the music world from Montana, you're awfully far from LA, Austin and Nashville. Yeah. But you've, you know, there's something to be said for a genuine experience coming through in a song. And I mean, you've already mentioned Steinbeck. You've mentioned the fact that you like telling stories and your musical leaning is in the storytelling vein. I mean, a singer songwriter is, I mean, yeah, Bob Dylan wrote some crazy nonsense sounding lyrics, but he definitely was quite good. Like Woody Guthrie at telling stories. So you've got a kind of a storyteller thread running through your your work and your passion. And too too much of one, if you ask my wife. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me a story, man. What's uh, tell me about one of your favorite experiences meeting an artist? Okay, I'll, I'll tell you a story about Jack White. But this is before I was in music journalism, and it was before I recognized this was Jack White. I uh, I was in a club in Nashville with a buddy of mine, and we're listening to this band and it's a packed house and we have a standing table uh near the bar but we can see the stage and so we just have a place to put our cocktails and not much more space than that well in walks a guy with powder on his face his hair doodallied up looking like edward scissorhands really and he's got a drop dead beautiful woman on his arm and I see them when they walk in. I'm like, holy cow, what is this that's happening? And they walk over and say, would you mind if we shared your table? Now, as God is my witness, and this embarrasses me, I thought this was a Johnny Depp impersonator. <laughs> so I'm thinking I'm inviting this freak show to join us. Yes, please pull, pull up some of our table. We're going to have us a good time tonight. And so I'm like, so what's your story? And he's like, well, you know, just out hearing some music. And well, that's nice. We're out hearing some music too. And we, for two hours, we had this weird conversation. And I'm not asking him directly, why are you dressed up like Johnny Depp? And how did a Johnny Depp impersonator get such a beautiful woman to go out with him? And uh, the night comes, the night goes, and we all go our separate ways. And my buddy said, Skip, what? What were you doing for the past two hours? That was the strangest conversation. And I said, well, I, I, he would not tell me why he was dressed up as Johnny Depp. He goes, dude, that was Jack White. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God. Oops. Oh, how, yeah, how embarrassing. Yeah. But he seemed very intrigued by the conversation because huh. it was not in the format that I'm 
he's probably I'm accustomed sure, yeah. to getting. Yeah. So, so it was this strange little thing. And then fast forward a couple of years later, I'm looking for an apartment and I am now, I am now in journalism, music journalism. And I'm looking, there's this mansion on eighth Avenue South in Nashville and they had a room for rent and it's beautiful. The room is beautiful and there's a pool in the back and there's five acres that stretch back to Otter Creek. Uh, you know, it's just a very nice place yeah. to be. So I'm about to say yes to this place and they're about to say yes to me. And we're standing by the pool and she goes, Oh, and as a bonus, your next door neighbor will be Jack white. And I said, Oh really? And she goes, why is that going to be a problem? And I said, I don't think it's going to be a problem, but, but let me put it this way. Let's say I'm out here one morning drinking my coffee and I'm reading a book. I don't need Jack White coming over here hassling me. <laughs> she said, well, I don't think he's going to do that. And I said, well, I don't know that we can put that in the lease, but yeah, I kind of don't, I don't kind of don't need that in my life. And I'm thinking this sounds really funny. She goes, well, he does come over and brings his kids because we have horses in the back and they like to pet the horses. And I'm like, well, I'm going to have to think about that. <laughs> Oh <laughs> and, and I, uh, you know, I called her up later that day and I said, you know, I think I would like to, my, my concerns about Jack White, notwithstanding, I think I'd like to take the place. And she goes, Oh, I didn't think you wanted it. I thought you were worried about, I've rented it out to someone else. Oh, <laughs> like you're the only guy in the world is a Jack White phobia. She just <laughs> found the right guy. Yeah. I, I met him a couple of times since then. And I've never mentioned that. You haven't me. mentioned that story. I no, bet, I feel no. like he'd probably appreciate it though. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> yeah. That's great, man. That's great. <laughs> so what's uh what's happening now? You're you're raising a kid. Yeah. You're still writing stories. I am. You're still going to shows. All of the above. The yeah. shows are fewer and farther between. Mm -hmm. Uh they're harder to to work in. But you know, Barrett, we got those pink big headphones yeah. that are noise canceling. Not noise canceling, they block out the sound. Right. So uh she's been to a couple outdoor festivals oh, with that's us. Cool. That's yeah. cool. Acclimate early. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's, we've been singing to her since day one. And That's right. she, she dances. She, she, right away, she realizes this is something different mm. and she, it changes her mood. And she yeah. sort of does that dance that the <laughs> groundhog does in yeah. Caddyshack, you know, to the Kenny Loggins song. <laughs> That's hilarious. Do you remember the first time you really heard music? Like you, you, you're experiencing something, you're like, hang on. Do you have a memory of that at all? Uh, music is always... No, I, I can't pinpoint that. But I can say my first concert, I was 10 years old. It was 1977 and it was Kiss. Oh. And that, that left a mark. Yeah. You know, so the that's, not the, that's not the kind of music I gravitate to anymore. Sure. But that was such a spectacle. Yeah. And I later interviewed Kiss's wardrobe manager for a story. Uh -huh. And I said, you know, uh, my parents didn't have a lot of money when I went to that concert, so I did not have good seats. I think it was a sacrifice for me to get tickets at all. Um, and But my seats weren't good. I was very far away. But my friends were up close. And I could see that band members were throwing things out into the audience. Now, I thought they were quarters. I didn't know these were guitar Perfect. picks. And... You know, I'm like, wow, they're throwing money out. That's, you know, uh, uh, that's weird. But, you know, so the next day when I regrouped with my friends who had the good seats, they all had guitar picks from Kiss. 
And I'm like, holy cow, how do I get in on that? I want to be closer to the music next time. And I'm telling that story to the wardrobe manager. And after the interview was over, she gave me a handful of Kiss guitar picks. <laughs> and she said the ones from Gene came out of his cod piece. And I'm like, nice. oh, well, maybe I'll... Maybe I'll <laughs> Maybe I'll boil these picks, yeah. but I still have them. A little Purell soup. Yeah. For... yeah. <laughs> That's great. Straight from his codpiece to your treasure chest. Yes. That's a... <laughs> wow. I don't know. There's no real follow-up question. It's hard to segue out of Gene Simmons' codpiece into something else. I mean, I think many things have been segued into from Gene Simmons' codpiece, <laughs> but those won't be addressed in this podcast. Right. Oh man, yeah, I, I I love that those early moments in someone's musical influence though. Those are always really cool to me. Uh, my wife Tiffany tells a good story about like the first time she heard music was Jimi Hendrix, and she was like, you know, listening to like something on tape or something, and just realized, wait a minute, I think you were right, like writing down lyrics. Like, oh, what does that mean? You know, thinking yeah. about it in that context. Yeah, I, I remember my my mother was a. Uh, is a piano player and she would play all this sad church music yeah in the house yeah all that minor chord stuff yeah like catholic music so it was really like somber (laughs) and dour and but i just remember feeling something from her playing that yeah like very very young and then uh yeah so there's this you know those moments when you first feel that energy whatever it is and I can imagine Kiss is just pure overload it was all it was it was overstimulation it was you know, it really was like a drug. It yeah. was crazy. Yeah. But I, I, I did have a... Music did always touch me. It could make me cry. It yeah. could make me happy. It could make me energized. It could change my mood. And, you know, of course, you learn to use that to your advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember as an older kid um, hearing, you know, Leonard Skinner has, uh, they call me the breeze. I keep mm-hmm. blowing down the road. That's an old J.J. Kale song. Yeah. And I didn't realize that. And then uh, I came across JJ's uh, Act Naturally record, so and great record. And I heard "Call Me the Breeze," and I heard it stripped down, and it's just a so metronome and him and his guitar back. for the most part, maybe two guitars, yeah. you know. And I was like, "Oh, holy cow! This is the backbone yeah. that that whole grand, glamorous Southern rock anthem yeah. is is hung upon." Yeah, and that was illuminating, mm-hmm. you know. So th- that really was when I started gravitating towards music at the stripped down form yeah yeah i mean just in the little bit of stuff that we've talked about i can tell you're into a lot of things in their stripped down form hmm. i mean even your, the writing that you appreciate you you quoted steinbeck we keep coming back to steinbeck <laughs> but talking about somebody who's really great at the stripped down form and nailing you with the sentence yeah you know and just and it's all just so succinct and nice i mean it's might be the writing equivalent of just a guy at a metronome and a guitar. Yeah. Well, Steinbeck had the line in Travels with Charlie, coffee so strong you could float a nail on it. Yeah. And I'd like to write something that simple and concise. And yeah. Powerful. Yeah. 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 Well, man, thank you for letting us uh, hang out. I'm looking forward to that bowl of chili. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Still raining, still drizzly, still 47 degrees. Still perfect. Chili that's digestion. cave weather. Isn't that the... The geothermal temperature of caves. Of caves is 47. Something like that. There's like a, a static temperature of caves yeah. at a certain level. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you, if I just... I'm pretty dumb. I don't really have that sort of information on call. <laughs> I'm glad to have that to forget later. So, yes. I enjoyed right speaking with you. Thank you for yeah. making the time. 
here saying thank you for listening to the monkey tooth podcast if you haven't already or it's been a while check out our website mtp.dog there's plenty of information there an about tab with a little bio on andrew myself and our dog pele there's also a van build tab detailing how we did our van conversion a journal tab and we as an andrew are doing our best to keep that up to date And last but not least, a contact tab, where you can leave your thoughts, suggestions, or questions. You can also contact us on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram, Monkey Tooth Podcast. If you would like to donate and or subscribe to the cause, you can go to Patreon and GoFundMe at Monkey Tooth Podcast. Patreon is not just a place to subscribe. We post lots of content there as well. We greatly appreciate each and every one of you. Love to all. I'm going to see you round nine and ten. Keep your head.